0: Judges chapter 2, verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Eris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. And the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by, to pity by their groaning because of the, those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord, as their fathers did, or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left, to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel, who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in, other, in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites, who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount baal Hermon, as far as Labo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods."
1: pray with me please father god you are holy as we read in these scriptures and you call us to holiness and you demand obedience and god i am so thankful that you sent jesus and now we have the holy spirit and so we don't walk alone we have you with us reminding us calling us back to holiness and reminding us that we no longer are slaves to sin we have the truth we have the choice to choose you father we thank you for loving us and for staying with us and for hearing us and answering us when we when we pray father as we listen to the words um, of lance that you've given to him as we take apart these scripture verses god i pray that you would give us ears to hear eyes to see hearts to understand and minds to believe we love you jesus amen amen awesome job well done with all the names including that dirty word in the middle there that we're going to get to um well, uh, here we are. We are in the second week of Judges, and y'all, we're not even at the crazy part yet. That starts next week. This is uh, what's known as the second introduction, ultimately, of the book of Judges. Last week, we had the first introduction. If you're thinking, the second introduction, well, yeah. If you look at Judges 1.1, it says, after the death of Joshua, and here we are in Judges six, and it says, when Joshua dismissed the people. So how can a man who is dead dismiss people? And what we find right here is I'm reminded of, uh, of the beauty of The Princess Bride. Um, and I knew, I know. Um, here it is. Uh, so I, I literally, we just watched The Princess Bride this week in my family because we have to. It's a great way to start the year. Um, and as we did, I was reminded of the grandpa in The Princess Bride who, who um, acts as this omniscient narrator. You'll remember that he interjects in the story a, a few times with young Fred Savage, especially when Princess Buttercup is uh, in the eel-infested waters of the shrieking eels, and at just about the time when she's about to get eaten, uh, Grandpa interrupts, saying, she doesn't get eaten at, at this time by the eels, you see. And Fred Savage is sitting there, and he goes, I'm telling you because you looked a little concerned. And he interrupts the story to help ease, ultimately, the anxiety of Fred Savage that Princess Buttercup is indeed going to make it through the night. You know the scene. If you don't, God be with you. But nonetheless... That is kind of the story here. It's this omniscient narrator now giving his take on how it is that they transitioned into the land. As you saw last week, they compromised greatly. And instead of devoting the Canaanites to destruction, at least by pushing them out, and if they would not leave, then to death, now all of a sudden we have the ramifications of that. What happens when we just compromise even just a generation later? And so as we look at this, I'm reminded to remind you uh, that the series that we're in is Judges, and the subtitle that we've had is False Gods. We'll start, start to see why here today, because they do indeed start to serve different and other gods, and they are false, for there is only one true God. And today, I want us to see how it is that God works. And that's a big title, so I can't tackle all of it, but I think Truly, you start to see how God works in this particular passage of Scripture because I think that you see in this passage what you see throughout all of the Bible, this great tension that we all wrestle with, and that is this. How much freedom does grace afford us? How much sin can we get away with until God disowns us? Will he disown us? Has he said that he will stay with us forever? I mean, is there a point where he just washes his hands of his people? Will, will he discipline us in his justice? Will he forgive us in his love? Is that an either-or question, or is there a tension that's building throughout the scriptures? I would submit there's a tension building, and it never gets satisfied until it gets satisfied in Jesus on the cross. But there is a tension, and it is building, and here we are, so to answer this questions and those questions that are building that tension, let's dig in and let's see what the first thing that matters for us today in this whole passage. And the first thing that matters is that family discipleship matters. Did you see this part, this kind of second introduction, verses 6 through 10, where it says, hey, Joshua and all that generation died off and a new generation came and they did not know the Lord. What a troubling reality that Israel found itself in. See, this is the tragic consequence of the greatest threat that the Bible warns us against. And what is the greatest threat that the Bible warns us against? It's forgetting. Could you think that that apostasy would ultimately start with amnesia? Amnesia. But that's the warning in Judges, that we would forget. That's why we got to come and remember. And though you may not think about the importance of remembering the gospel week in and week out through an ordinance that Jesus, I mean, could you think all the things that Jesus would do to make sure that we remembered his sacrifice, it's communion. Like, of all the things that he could have done, he could have said, hey, put this up uh, in your walls and on your doorposts like they did in old days. Like, don't forget But instead, he says, I want you to ingest this on a regular basis. Make this a part of your spiritual diet on a regular basis to not forget, because in forgetting, there is great danger. See, the next generation did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That's the end of verse 10. They knew the stories, don't you think? It was an oral tradition. They told these stories of who God was. They probably participated in the religious festivities and the festivals. The problem is, the stories were just, just not really, they're absent of the power because God wasn't really the star of the show anymore. There was something else that was being told, and we don't know exactly what that was, but they forgot. They didn't know. For us, if they were in our world, they went to church, they heard the gospel, but God was no longer the hero. We were the center of the show. These folks us, we have the tendency to not know God. They looked the part, but their hearts were far from him, becoming bored of those old stories, finding little meaning in the ceremonies, whether it be weekly or monthly or annually. They instead started to just not be at all phased by God's miracles. They started to point them up as myths and fairy tales. It all became pointless And if, after all, you can look at the leaders of the establishment and realize they're flawed, and so the whole system must be flawed. If that is not still in us in our day and age of deconstruction, if you don't hear that in the book of Judges, I invite you to. The amnesia of the first generation led to the apostasy of the next generation. This is something that John Wesley uh, uh, ultimately picked up on when he wrote these words, What one generation tolerates the next generation will embrace. You can see this, can't you? We were just talking this morning uh, in our household. I I cut out a social media rant out um, out of my sermon, so this isn't in my notes, but I'll just tell you. We can see this. We can see how the previous several generations had a grave concern over entertainment going into every single home in the form of a little box that they called the TV after radio. And then TV started to come o- take over our lives, and it was cable television in the 80s. I was babysat by more cable television than probably all of us combined. I don't know what the deal is. But every Goonies reference you can think of, I got it in my heart. I got it in my soul. Because I watched that movie a lot, along with 16 Candles, along with all those. It's ridiculous. Because that's what we did. And that was a concern, and now social media goes on to the next concern. And the sexual revolution in the 60s has given birth to where we are today. Because what one generation tolerates, the next one embraces. And I would add, after embracing it, you celebrate it. And I think that's where we are today. Today. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace, and that's exactly what Israel was starting uh, to understand. They had compromised, and now there were great consequences. A generation after they got into the promised land, and God is gone. He's there, but he's not in their hearts. So friends, as we look at this, we look at the great danger, not just of amnesia, but also of not giving your kids what matters the most. I need to invite all of us, and this is where I wish it wasn't a student Sunday, but I'll just trust God's sovereignty, the fact that all of our students are out of this room, that I can talk to us parents a little bit, right? Because I did the stats, and it's something like 85% of our church needs to hear this today. Why? Because you're a parent. That's why. And so in all of this, I wanted to remind us that you, friends, are the primary disciples of your children. The church is not the primary disciple of your children. So if you think that the generations of long gone, of like the 80s, 90s, 2000s, right, when I became a believer in 99, like ministry was all about, student ministry in particular was all about, don't worry about it. You bring your kids. They'll bring their friends. You drop them off, and we're going to entertain them for an hour and give them a little Bible at the end, and then hopefully that will produce good disciples over time. And some of it worked. But if we're not careful, we use that model as the primary disciple-making model that even in this church where there's no programs on purpose, it's not because we're small because if you look around, we're not that small anymore. It's because it's an intentional effort to make sure that you, friends, discipling your kids, and that we are there to supplement and help. See how it works? In our culture, it may be vice versa, but that is not the way that we want to hold uh, in our church. So let me cut to the chase on this. I had a lot more words on this, but I'm just going to cut to the chase. Let me talk to the men real quick, and now you're all going, okay, can we wait until Father's Day? No. Men, this is your responsibility don't think that because your wife is really good at being a teacher and nurtures your children that you get to outsource your responsibility even to your wife. The scriptures are clear in Ephesians 6, chapter 4. It says, fathers, not parents. It doesn't say parents. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Ooh, that's how we're going to start family discipleship, I guess but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. It is fathers that God is going to hold primarily responsible for the spiritual temperature of the home. Whether you know this or not, whether you're in a single home or not, and you're here and you're doing your best and your husband's not on board, I feel for you. That's a really hard situation to be in. But I'll tell you, Statistics will tell you that the father is setting the spiritual pace in the home. Whether it's unhealthy or healthy, they're going to set the pace. So it's no wonder that many, many people are pleading with the Lord to break the heart of their husband. Because they are ultimately setting the pace. And if your heart is broken for the Lord, and you've just given yourself to other things like work and hunting... And sports, you are discipling them into something, but it isn't Jesus. It, as much as you are devoted to getting your kid to be a good hunter or a good baseball player, guilty, or really have a good work ethic and to show them, modeled for them, that a, 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 like you need to provide all that's good and right. But if you are not doing it to bring them up in fear and instruction of the Lord, you, friends, have failed. I will have failed. This isn't a me versus you thing. We're all in this together. We've got to partner with one another to ensure that we are accountable to the right things, that the right things make our calendar, that we don't compromise along the way, that we we ultimately see generation to generation that it would not be the story of our household or our generation, that they no longer knew the Lord because we just forgot We just got busy, that COVID was really hard, and we just never recovered. We've got to push past all of the excuses that we can come up with and establish some rhythms, like spiritual rhythms, that even if they never come to Christ, they'll be in their 20s and in their 30s, and they'll look back and say, but my parents did everything that they could do to put me in a culture where Christ was known, that their salvation we can't control, but we can control the environment's. We would bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. I know this is hard as a man. It's also hard as a woman. I don't want to want to disregard that. But but I'll tell you, like there's a there's a book out there called "Why Men Hate Going to Church." Read it. If you're a dude, read it. If you're if you're a female, go read it. Why men hate going to church? Great book. But it tells you that that women are just pre, more predisposed to reading and praying and serving and singing, right, than men are. Men like to kill and conquer. That's why we go to do sports, and why we do hunting, and why we're all about work. That's what we do. Like, we're the the hunter, you're the gatherer. That's how it all kind of started, right? And so in all of that, I, I know that it's difficult, but friends, we must put first things first. Now, discipleship is both taught and caught. And so we must be about both, in the minutes, in the moments, and in the milestones of life. So let me just tell you, you have, re- you know there's a resource table here at the Grove? Did you know that? Um, this one is free. It is a devotional. This marries up. You don't have to do anything but read it and ask a question. And the answer's in the parentheses. It's awesome. It's awesome. Like, it's a great opportunity for you to disciple your younger ones, like K-5 like through five or pre-K through fifth grade. Like, great opportunity to disciple your kids through this. This marries up with what we do on Sundays. We chose that curriculum so that you can continue to be the primary disciple maker, so that you can reinforce five days a week, three days a week, another day of the week, what we teach them here on Sundays in our Grove Kids areas. But that's not all. There's also this great book. It is really more about um, fathers to sons, but I'm, I'm applying things out of this book right now with my daughters. It's called The Intentional Father. I think it's five bucks on the table out there today. If I could promote one book, go get this one. It will sell out before we're gone, I'm sure. It's on Amazon too. It's not subsidized there. It is here, just for you. But we make these things available for you for you to teach your kids, but not just an in instruction, it's the catching of discipleship that's important, too. Like, Taylor Swift is all the rage these days I've heard. But I'm going to tell you right now, karma is not welcome in my home. Her, her song, Karma, because it starts with, she tells you who she's singing a worship song to. Karma is a god not welcome in my home. I, my, my, my kids, my girls know some Taylor Swift. They can sing every word, and I hear it. And I go, hey, you ever heard that song? Let's rewind that back and let's hear that lyric. Because karma is not Christian. It's Buddhist. It's anti-grace. If you want to live a life of karma, that is a life of scorekeeping. I'll do right and I'll get right. That is not the story of the scriptures or your life. I've done wrong and God gives me grace. It's anti-God. It's anti-gospel. It's anti-grace. But not only karma, there's also another little one. I mean, if you just keep listening to all the songs. Cruel Summer. Um, Driving around with my two teenage daughters, and they're jamming out. I'm having fun with them, and we're just being dads and daughters, at least with one of them. And all of a sudden, here comes the lyric. Here comes the lyric. I'm drunk in the back of the car, and I go, Hold up, push power. That goes from like decibels, way too much for my old age hearing, to nothing. I go, What'd you just sing? Uh, no, 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 no. You, you, this is fun. Come on. What'd you just sing? Uh, I'm not really going to do that. I don't know that because you just sang it. It's so super sneaky how the world wants to disciple our kids, and if we don't just take little moments to correct the world's discipleship of our kids and bring them into a Christian discipleship of our kids, they'll just go on thinking that that's normal. It's not normal. It may be normal, actually, but it's not healthy. I remember being in Coldplay Concert. We invited our kids to go to a Coldplay Concert a couple years back. And I, was, I even said this to this daughter. I said, hey, I'm not getting after you. You noticed I practiced the same thing, right? She's like, what are you talking about? I said, remember the Coldplay Concert? She goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, Coldplay Concert. We're in NRG Stadium. Whole place is bouncing. I mean, that place is jamming out. We're in the middle of it. We're having fun, right? We're dancing. We're singing. We're doing all the things until we get to one song called Hymn for the Weekend. And my daughter looks over at me and she goes, hey, why aren't you singing anymore? I said, just listen to the words, girl. This is in the middle of the concert because the words to that song, the chorus are is, I, oh, I, am feeling drunken high, so high, so high. I go, just listen. She goes, oh. And I was like, yes, I'm not going to sing or dance to this one. Sorry, girl. And she just went, oh. And just like in the car with Taylor Swift, she goes, you know, you're really killing the vibe, dad. And you know what my job is? Not to keep the vibe. My job is to kill the vibe. I will be your dream killer all day. I <laughs> don't have a problem with that at all. We don't need to just keep them safe. We need to model out for them how to engage the world with wisdom and nuance. We don't need to be afraid of the world. It's not the boogeyman. Jesus is stronger. We do need to engage with wisdom and nuance. Well, yeah, all right, cool. Sing the song, but don't sing that part. Or that, that whole thing is just not... Uh, for the lord so maybe we don't do that whole one and that's how we do it at least you've got to find your own rhythm so i would just say have grown-up conversations with them in front of them if you have a grown-up conversation that you need to have on the phone about work you might want to do it in front of your kids when they're old enough that how else are they going to learn how to do this they got to catch it not just be taught it all right that's number one family discipleship matters and we are going to be here a long time i do apologize number two how does god work Sin creates a cycle of distress. See, that's the second thing that's on display in this passage, that sin creates a a cycle of distress. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, I'll read. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Just look at all the words that the author of Judges tells us they did. They did what was evil. They served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord God the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger, and they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. If you don't know this, Baal was the fertility god, and I do apologize. This is about to get graphic. Um, Actually, I don't apologize. It's just part of the reality, but it is going to get graphic. Uh, Baal was the fertility god who provided not just children but also rain. And that rain came by means of him and his consort having um, cosmic sex, and so the idea of rain in uh, Baal and Ashtoreth worship um, ultimately happened as Baal and Ashtoreth, his consort, female consort, had cosmic sex and climaxed, and that's where rain came from. Came from. And if you hear that and you're grossed out, I want you to understand, Israel forsake the Lord of their fathers for that God. So if you don't think that that was dangerous for them, if you don't think that God was justified by sending them, the Canaanites, and everybody else out of the promised land, I would invite you to go back to what that would do to a society when you worship a God who is ultimately providing for you through some perversion of what God had called good and right within the right context. All of a sudden, husbands are leaving their wives to go and worship at the temple, and the way that they would do that is they would go and have sex with a female prostitute and call that holy, call that devotion. You could see how this, by generation to generation, would corrupt an entire society, it is no wonder then that there is graphic language for God's description of what Israel has done in verse 17. Look at what he says. You did not listen. I rose up, judges. I, I, I got you out of the hand of those who would oppress you, yet you did not listen to their judges, for they hoard after other gods and bowed down to them. Yeah, that's in the Bible. That's probably not the part that we read over bedtime stories with our kids, but that's in there for all of us, and it brings, sheds to light for all of us, what happens when we abandon our Lord? What happens when we too sin? God sees it in the same light that when we are, um, when we forget his goodness and his grace, that's ultimately what leads to any sin. Good or bad, I mean, great or, or tiny in our own eyes. It is a, a, well, the NIV says prostituted after other gods. That's in all of us. And this cycle goes on repeat in the book of Judges. I brought a little um, illustration here, a little graphic for us to see. This is called the Judges Cycle. It is a right summary to say that they were in terrible distress at the end of Judges 15. But this is what happens on repeat in the book of Judges. The people commit idolatry. God sends a nation to oppress his people. God sends evil Baal worshipers, to judge his own people for their sin. That'll mess with you. He, The Israelites then cry out to God. God responds in pity and compassion. He then sends a judge to deliver them at, from their oppressors. And over these chapters that we will read starting next week, there are 12 different judges one representing um every ultimate ultimate uh, 12 tribes of israel and over the 12 different cycles it gets worse and worse and worse and worse until we get to the end and the end of the book of judges y'all are all going to be going why did you take us through that to point to the one who ultimately will come and we'll get back to that in just a moment. But this is the judges' cycle. We're going to have this on repeat, so you don't have to even commit it to memory. We're going to show it again and again and again because here's the reality. Israel's spiritual amnesia meant that they forgot that one of God's name is jealous. Do you remember in Exodus thirty-four, fourteen, that God reveals himself? Not as the, he is jealous. He, his name is jealous. And jealousy and anger are the other side of the coin of his love. Same thing happens in your marriage, right? I will love my wife, but if, or maybe I should probably say it this way She will love me, but if I uh, uh, provoke her, right? If I run out on the covenant that she's made with me and I start to love others, she's going to get jealous and she's going to get angry, right? Rightfully so. It's the other side of the same coin, and that's the kind of language that God is using here. And he uses other nations to judge his own. In verse 14 and 15, read with me, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Can you imagine being given the promises, and now all of a sudden it's all fading away? Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Do you have that category in your mind? That the hand of of the Lord might be against you for harm. Why would he do that? What would be driving God's motive in that? I'll get to that in just a moment. But we, friends, must discern whether some, not all, not every difficulty that we endure. We must discern if some of our hardships, emotional, financial, circumstantial, physical, might be due to our lack of devotion to God. We considered that. Ephesians 4, verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Um, The most miserable Christians that I know are those that know the right thing to do. They know what God wants them to do, and they rebel against it. Those are the ones who are riddled with anxiety and depression, and maybe it's not anxiety, maybe it's not depression, maybe it's the Holy Spirit inside of you grieving. Is it at least a possibility? to our lack of devotion to God? Could it be that some of our turmoil is brought on not by the world or the odds being stacked against us, but because God has been so grieved by our rebellion or our apathy or our amnesia that he has turned us over to either, one, our enemies to plunder us, or two, to our own desires. Be careful when we get what we want, Romans 1 will tell us. Be careful when he gives us what we want, especially if it's not in line with God's desires for our lives. The Baals and the Asherahs are not just in a world far away, but in our world, in our hearts. Baal and Asherah helped you get two things, money and sex. If Baal provided a good fertility and good crops for you, what did that do for you? Provided security for you. And then you got to have casual sex on the side with temple prostitutes, and you were able to define significance in that way. Money and sex have always been at the heart of a culture's demise and if we look at us we're no different than israel in the time of the judges so in in every area of your life whether it be money or in sex in, in your career and your possessions in your parenting in every area of your life two questions that i will ask you to discern whether or not you are worshiping the king or whether you are worshiping another god And these are borrowed from Tim Keller, and he says this. This is the first question. Am I willing to do whatever God says about this, this area? Am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? If the answer is no, you've got to discern, what other God are you seeking? If God is saying to do it this way, and you're saying, no, I'd rather do it that way, you've got to discern, why is it that I want kingship instead of submitting that? to the king of kings. And the second question is, am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? Not just what he says in this area, but what he sends in this area, whether it be consequence, and discipline or provision. And that will be our true test of what we love and whom we love. See, there is a war going on in our souls if we continue on in apathy or amnesia or willful ignorance. God friends will not sit by. There will be consequences to turning our backs on God's standards for living and loving, which leads us to point three. And you're all saying, thank God. God's love Disciplines us. Not just that family discipleship matters. That is a way that God works in this world. Not just that there is a a cycle of distress, that they they were in terrible distress in 15, and it's a cycle that's created by sin. That is where God intervenes and shows us a better way. And that better way sometimes means that His love, in His love, He disciplines us. If you remember, I'll go back to last week how we ended in chapter 2. Uh, At the end of verse 1, it says this, I will never break my covenant with you, God says. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so we return to the tension that we had at the beginning. What is God going to do when he is so committed to his people, and yet they do not respond with the same kind of love towards him. That's at the heart of every, every one of us today because we know we cannot respond in the same way that he loves us. Will he disown them in justice? Will he forgive them in love? How can he tolerate any sin in his holiness? And his response when we wander, when we rebel, is that in his love, he disciplines us. Now let me tell you, there's a few things he does when he disciplines us. One is he, teach, or he tests us. In verses 22 of chapter 2 and uh, 1 of chapter 3, it says that he tested Israel. God doesn't need um, to know what's in your heart. He knows what's in your heart. The test then is to reveal to ourselves what's in our heart. Because our heart deceives us. So when he tests us, it's a revealing so that we know what's in our heart. The second thing he does is he teaches us. God clearly states that God's testing is for our teaching when he says this in chapter 3, verse 2, right? It is only that he says this, he tests them, it was only in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. What an interesting thing for God to teach his people. And what is it that they might learn in war? Same thing that the first generation was to learn in Exodus 14, 14, would say this, God fights our battles for us. We need only to be still. See, God is the one who is fighting. We just need to rest, surrender our control over the situation with our strategies and what our thoughts are, and surrender to him and let him do what he has said he will always do. See, don't dismiss discipline from grace And discipline, excuse me, and teaching from grace, they go hand in hand. It is a false dichotomy to go, Well, don't give me discipline, Lord, just give me grace. Titus 2 will tell us grace instructs us, teaches us, trains us. This is what the Bible says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It is the grace of God that will train you, teach you. That means you'll be wrong by God's grace. And he'll show you where he's right by God's grace. He teaches us along the way. And then finally what he does is that in his love, he indeed does discipline us. Proverbs 19.18 says this, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to their death here's what God's saying and it's echoed in Hebrews chapter 12 when it talks about how God disciplines us because we're his sons we're his daughters if we are not people that will heed the discipline of God right then we count ourselves not to be sons and daughters of our king and therefore, going back to family discipleship, if we do not discipline our own children, hear this now, if we are not disciplining our own children, we are sitting as willful parties to their death. That's what the Bible says. That if we, you know, don't, don't be abusive, okay? That's not the point but we need to wrestle with that tension that God is calling us to be disciplinaries in our homes for the glory of God, not for our own control, not for our own appeasement, but for God's glory. Otherwise, we would be willing parties to their death. God doesn't sit idly by when we run away. He doesn't keep giving us suckers when our teeth are rotting out. No, he pulls it from us and what are you doing? That's the bad, that's a wrong appetite. Sugar will not do. Come to me, the bread of life. Get your sustenance here. It will be difficult. It will be hard, but come. God disciplines us because we are his kids. But here's the beauty. In his discipline, God's grace is there is a limit. There is a limit to his discipline on us. In verse 18 of chapter 2, it says ultimately this, that um, he limits his severe mercy, his discipline on his kids when he shows us and he brings us, he has compassion on us. That's what it says in verse 18. Let me read it. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the land and their enemies in the days of the judge. Oh, I think I, I skipped over it. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. God's grace is that he has pity on us even when we're rebelling against us. That is grace. That is beauty. That is a limit to the discipline. And in the book of Judges he sends a savior. He sends a judge. And that judge mitigates their sins, cut offs the oppression of their oppressors, and establishes again a religious rhythm for the community. But all of the judges failed. They failed to truly lead God's people, and in the end, they become insufficient saviors. Those judges become false gods in a way. And all of this, friends, points not to just any judge that God would appoint, but the ultimate judge who will come and has come. Not just any Savior who is insufficient, but the sufficient Savior and Jesus who is sent with great compassion and love. That though the sins of past generations were looked over, God was now sending His Son to be the final author of our faith and arbiter of all truth who would selflessly die for sinners and rebels and wanderers and those who would just simply forget His goodness over time. And when he came, he released us from the oppression of the truest enemies that we would have of death and sin and the devil. And he reconciled us, enemies of his father, by the blood that he shed on the cross. And when he reconciled us, he gave us full rights as children. We would sit at his table and we would joy not just a cracker and a juice, but vats of mercy and grace for all of eternity. And we look forward to that day at the wedding supper of the Lamb when it will all come true. All the bad things in this world will be undone. That's the greater story that we're wrapped up in as followers of Jesus. Not just believers of Jesus, but followers of Jesus. That we would then, if we follow it would be impossible for us to have some sort of spiritual amnesia and go our own way. And where we wander, may we rely on the community around us that hasn't forgotten. The generation that has been built up in instruction and in discipline of the Lord to fortify us when we're weak, that we may have hope. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we need you more than ever. The book of Judges reveals that we are just as full of amnesia as they were. That we forget your grace. We forget how far away we were when you intervened into our lives. That when we want to sin, we're certainly not thinking about the death of your son Jesus on the cross, we're thinking about pleasure and immediately. Satisfaction immediately. Placate immediately. Anxiety gone. Depression gone. Difficulties gone right now. That's what we're thinking about. But these are not the ways of our Savior. As evidenced by your death it would not come with your immediate satisfaction but with delayed gratification. Gratification delayed satisfaction of many sons and daughters coming to your father. We are grateful that we can be counted among those sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. We're grateful that though we wander, rebel, and forget, you will never break your covenant. Just like you said in chapter 2, verse 1, you will never break your covenant with us. Though we may not obey, you remain steadfast in your love for us, Lord. We are grateful. May we live in deep gratitude with full remembrance of your beauty, of your goodness, and of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.